I'll go ahead and describe Cocaine Bear because I feel like okay. you can add more context into your description of uh-huh. streaming homework. I mean, I uh, sure I get it, but yours is also about a bear on cocaine. So right. So in you owe me. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you live in San Diego, California. And Cassidy Robinson, you are recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are going to be talking about the Cocaine Bear. We will also be talking... Cocaine Bear. Mm -hmm. Cocaine Bear. At the end of the podcast, we're going to be reviewing the Takashi Miike film from 2017, Blade of the Immortal, which we watched on Hulu, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's and, where I watched it. Which is based on a manga series, which I have not read, but I think you've dipped in a little. Yeah, I've read the first. Dark Horse has been taking a bunch of, like, kind of older, more... Um, Older mangas that are more like kind of pillar mangas and has been publishing a bunch of them in these like really pretty faux leather bound deluxe editions. Before we get into that, we have a couple orders of business. First, this week I did a guest spot on the Soundtracker podcast. Oh, yeah. Uh, It's a really cool show by uh, eric peacock he'd been a twitter personality that i've known for a long time um or been following for a long time and he parlayed that twitter success into a, a successful podcast where he brings on different people every week to talk about a film and its soundtrack and we recorded an episode about the film airheads the adam sandler and Brendan Fraser comedy from 1994. Right now, the episode is paywalled as bonus content. But uh, if you sign up for the one of his Patreon plans, I believe you get 30 days free to try it out. So if you really want to hear the episode, that's one way to do it. Um, yeah, I, and I uh, I listen to the episode. It's it's a really good episode. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's a really cool show, and if if you're not familiar with it yet, even if I'm not on it, you should be listening to the show, because I, I, I've i been following it since its inception a couple, I think he's around year two or so on it, so um, yeah, check out the Soundtracker podcast. Not that he needs our help uh, getting it out there, he's had much bigger guests than me, including other film critics and uh, comedians. Uh, but yeah, uh, go check that out. Going back to our conversation that we opened the show with last episode for Letterboxd, we have four spots for our top films, and we thought because they come up on the show so frequently and they sort of represent our taste, we would have to list Jaws and Batman Returns. Mm-hmm. 
Kind of by default. (laughs) By default, yes. But for the other two spots, we were going to each list our own suggestion for what should go into the other two slots. So I have a couple here. Mm -hmm. I have a a couple as well. Uh, uh, My issue is, you know, we only get four slots. So there's not a lot of room for nuance. And I think both of our tastes are varied enough that, you know, we could do some pretty deep cuts, but mine are... You know, on a on surface level, they could be considered basic, but that I think that's okay. Okay, well, I tried to come up with something since Jaws and Batman are fairly populist. I tried to come up with some stuff that we've talked about on the podcast and equally like, but are not necessarily basic, depending okay. on the group of people you're talking to. So All right, this is this is deliberation time. This is. MySpace Top 8. <laughs> um, okay, so for my pick, we could either have uh, The Guest, which was a film we both did for streaming homework okay. that we liked a lot. I think all of these were streaming homework at some point. I've been going back and doing lists for our streaming homework, so they're fresh in my mind. Okay. Um, so, yes, uh, Adam Wingard's The Guest which is a, a little newer. Um, Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles gangster film. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. That one was pretty good. Mm. Okay, so far I'm liking your picks more than mine. <laughs> um, you're, well, you're welcome to go back to our letterbox and look at the lists. So, I mean, maybe I should. Maybe I'll pull that up right now and, and just see. Um Mine were just more kind of movies that, again, I think we both like a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. So, like, for instance, I felt the need to pick a a John Carpenter because he comes up so much. And so, by default, I just thought of what is sort of universally accepted at this point to be the best Carpenter, and that is The Thing. Um, so that is one that I would propose. And I, I had a similar thought with Tarantino because he comes up a lot and the safe money is that Pulp Fiction is sort of his most, uh, acclaimed work, uh, even though, and we did that whole breakdown of Tarantino's movies. Um, Mm -hmm. Uh, so you, those were my two propositions: were uh, John Carpenter's *The Thing* and *Pulp Fiction*. Okay. Well, the last one I have for one of my picks was uh, *Hell Comes to Frogtown*, which is definitely the most <laughs> obscure, but uh, yes. was kind of a delight to run into. I, I'm okay with using any of yours, like. Uh, <laughs> the guest, I think, is a is a nice deep cut that a lot of people, even though it's newer, I think a lot of people slept on it. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Plus, it got high recommendation when we had Brian O'Connell as our guest. Um, sure, uh, Touch of Evil is great. It's you know Orson Welles, um, and I 
yeah, I liked that movie a whole lot. Um, I would say Touch of Evil is the movie you should show people if they only know Orson Welles for Citizen King. I agree. Yeah, I I think it's it's yeah because Citizen Kane is so it, its historical legacy is so set. Uh, yeah. Again, it's it's kind of for lack of a better word, it's kind of basic. It's kind of like people can talk about Citizen Kane having never seen Citizen Kane. Um, sure, but Touch of Evil, I think, is like a little more. Um, yeah, like you said, I think it's a, it's a good one to see if that's all you know. And I think it's a great one to see if you don't know anything by Orson Welles. Right, if you just like stylish noirs from the time period. Yeah. And um, Hell Comes to Frogtown is just such a, a deep rip. I love that one because it's campy and stupid and we both love campy and stupid but it's not bad it's it's i would say high camp i would agree so gun to your head which one are you picking hell comes to frogtown oh okay that's not what i expected well we'll do that then i think it it captures us better than the other two i i love i loved the other two movies but to me Mm -hmm. it's just like i don't know that seems more like an us movie. I agree. I agree. Okay, and what about you? Uh okay, so I only I only brought two picks to the table. Um but I think I think your choices are are good that I will let you vote for them if you want for the fourth movie, Gun to Your Head of the Four, John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, Pulp Fiction, The Guest, or Touch of Evil, you can have the final say. Guest, Touch of Evil, Pulp Fiction, and The Thing. Hmm. The Thing is a little basic. I, I don't think anyone needs to be recommended The Thing. Fair. Fair. Uh, and, and, and similarly like to, like, the- Jaws. Right. I feel like that's a horror film you're going to come across sometime in your life, even if you don't like horror. Um, Mm. Pulp Fiction is a little film bro. Yeah. It it kind of puts out a vibe that I don't necessarily want to put out. But I mean, I don't I don't dislike that movie. I I like it a whole lot. But I, I unfortunately, there's a reputation of I don't disagree. I like I said, I just kind of wanted to pick something by those two directors that Yeah. What if the, is there a different film from either of those that maybe the slightly deeper cut like I don't know. I, I was going to suggest they live because we do uh we used to we sometimes do a segment called Consumo Bay. Um, which is referencing that movie and that, you know, that's a carpenter, but sure. I also feel a little weird about having two Rowdy Piper movies in our top <laughs> four. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Yeah. If we, we could try and go all four, if we tried really hard. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but that, that was the other carpenter I was thinking of and the other Tarantino I was thinking of, uh, Reservoir Dogs. I, is a little less 
uh, immediate reaction than Pulp Fiction. Here's um, a wild thing about Reservoir Dogs is uh-huh. pre, uh, let's say pre Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. Reservoir Dogs was maybe at a point of time overrated to perfectly rated. Uh, not overrated in the sense that it's not a good movie that people shouldn't see, but that generally if you were a, uh, like a fan of like violent, cool movies from the 90s, you've seen it. Um, yeah. Post uh, Inglorious Bastards, now I think it's underrated. Now I feel like oh, people don't get to it as quick. Okay. I see in my head I still kind of think of that one in similar terms of pulp fiction of like you know dudes mm. in college just sort of had a poster of it that they bought from FYE and maybe they didn't like it for the right reasons they just liked it cuz it was sort of a violent crime movie. Yeah, everything um, you're saying right now is profiling a person our age. Yeah. I, I mean that you're not wrong, but it's still like that still exists in my head. And that was why I felt kind of we it, it's hard to pick a Tarantino, right? That because person it's like, is married now and has to keep <laughs> that poster either in their den away well, from they, the they rest probably, of the house or no, they got rid of it when they moved in with, I don't know, it, gun to your, like, what would you pick for a Tarantino? Um, if I'm just going on cool points, I would say either uh, Jackie Brown or uh, True Romance. Um, oh, okay. I see. I wasn't thinking of True Romance because he he didn't direct it, but sure. I do love that movie. Yeah, I like it a whole lot. Um, or if we're going his his canon, you know. Um, then I would I would say Reservoir Dogs. So let's do Reservoir Dogs as slot number four. Okay. All right. Res I like it. Dogs. All right. If someone sees this, you know, how will they how much will they immediately judge us? I think Hell Comes to Frogtown is our saving grace. <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if that was Fight Club instead of <laughs> instead of <laughs> yeah, then it's of like Frogtown, then we are, we're we're still in the den. <laughs> um, all right, uh, segment number two. Prior to our review of Cocaine Bear, uh, I saw a tweet. I shared the tweet. I had to share it with you via text, but uh, it kind of went viral. Uh, last week, there is a person here named Jack Corbett who tweeted, Annoying question. If Criterion Collection had TV shows, what would they be besides Twin Peaks? Um, funny enough, I think Criterion has released some TV shows, but it's not like, uh, Narrative no, it's, tele- it's like normal narrative television things like they're like limited series da 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 da. Yeah, and I I think it's uh I I think it it's sort of like a collection of older shows. So I don't Right. Think I think it's... they did a thing called like Golden Age of Television and it's just like a a handful of certain episodes of certain shows by certain directors. 
Yeah. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that could be something they end up doing, although they've yet to really aspire to that in their market. Uh, but I figured we would we kind of give this a shot and list we'd each list three TV shows that we would like to see given the film school in a box criterion treatment. Which means, yeah. I mean, most of these, whatever we end up saying, probably has been released at some t- one time or another, although not always. Um, oh, I, I think um, at least two of mine have definitely seen a physical release. Um, right, uh, but it might have been a while, yeah. and it might have been bare bones, um, or whatever. Uh, but, you know, under the Criterion thing, we're thinking... New directors, commentaries, uh, interviews, retrospectives, essays, the whole shebang. Yeah, as much uh, as much content, if you will, as as you can imagine. Right, and as well as updating the film stock and things like that, so it looks better, cleaner. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, I'll let you start off. What's what's one that you would? Um, I guess I'll start with the most modern one, um, because it it just ended last year. But uh, my first pick is Atlanta. Oh, Um, sure. It is. uh, Is it over over? uh, It's over over. Yeah, it's just the the final season is five uh, five seasons. Um, Okay. Uh, you know, it was created and, and largely directed by Donald Glover and Hiro Mirai. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I don't know if you've seen Atlanta. I um, haven't, but I've heard nothing but good things. And I know, isn't that, uh, what, didn't Lakeith Stanfield play a pretty big part in that? Yeah, he's one of the main characters. The, yeah. So the main characters are, um, Donald Glover, uh, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, who's had a bunch of stuff lately, like he was in Bullet Train, he was in Eternals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's um, blowing his, up. Yeah, he's he's having a good time, and um, and he's fucking great in Atlanta. Lakeith Stanfield is uh, one of the main characters, and Zazie Beats. So I mean, like that right there mm-hmm. is just like an incredible. Like, the fact that all four of them are regulars on the same show should get attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's a, and it's about, like, the uh, like southern hip-hop scene, right? Like, the behind-the-scenes the behind the behind of the industry. Yeah, so specifically it's about uh, Brian Tyree Henry plays this rapper uh, who goes by Paperboy, who sort of gets you know, has this sort of like, uh, SoundCloud success and his cousin, uh, Donald Glover becomes his manager. And that's, that's like, you know, the on paper plot. Mm -hmm. Um, but really it is so much more like they, they do such fun, creative world building. Um, episodes are some episodes are like almost horror uh but it it, it all some episodes are definitely drama but it always keeps the core of this like comedy 
and it, it's just brilliant. Like it's it's so well directed, definitely worth it. And I think the kind of show that would be just incredible to watch with you know like director's commentary and uh, all the special features and all the behind the scenes stuff. Like it, it, it's one of those shows that it just has it this sort of built-in mythology already mm-hmm. uh that it would be really fun to just sort of explore every nook and cranny of it what network originally premiered it it was fx okay that's what i thought is it a half hour or hour yeah. long drama it's a half hour um so okay. it's pretty easy to to and i th- you know i I don't think the seasons are terribly long. Um, I think, you know, it's like 12 to 15 episodes. So you can burn through it pretty quick. Uh, But man, it is just, it is in my, you know, tops of favorite shows of the last decade. It's so good. Cool. Cool. All right. Uh, My first choice is a one season wonder. And I don't even know if they got to show all of the episodes in the season before it was canceled. I know that they have since been circulating online or whatever. But I'm not even sure if there is a physical release of this. But I would choose the Dana Carvey show. Steve Carell and Stephen Colbert were both cast members alongside Dana Carvey who would show up. This was around the time when he was still on SNL or just right after. And as writers on the show, we also had Charlie Kaufman, uh, pre-cancellation Louis C.K. Um, That's right. And uh, uh, I think um, who does the cartoon segments? Yeah. Um, Robert I can't think of his name. Smigel. I believe he was part of the writer's room as well. And it was this ragtag little show that, you know, never really got to see itself to completion. It was kind of an addendum to, to Saturday Night Live, but it was a lot more high concept. It was a lot weirder. Um, sort of in the same And it wasn't live. It wasn't live, yeah. But there was a live studio audience, but, uh, but it didn't premiere live. Um, but it was, but it wasn't as topical, or if they did do something topical, it was usually they would take it much further than just like the obvious, like, you know, let's do the presidential debates, but make everyone say dumb things. They would, they would take it much further than just the obvious thing. And yeah, there's some really funny sketches in there. It was a kind of a lightning in a bottle moment of all of these creatives before they blew up, uh, with the exception of Dana Carvey, of course, who was already huge. But uh, the network had no faith in the show. They ran it, I think, for four something episodes before it was over. And yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to see a retrospective DVD collection of those episodes in the like Criterion style. I absolutely agree. I have, uh, similar feelings about the Ben Stiller show, but, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right. What's your next pick? Uh, my next pick, 
was a pop culture juggernaut that literally changed TV, uh, but I think gets kind of forgotten. You know, everybody attributes you like the golden age of television to stuff like, um, you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men, which, uh, you know, of course, um, but I'm going a little bit further back to Lost. I, I thought you were going to say Heroes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Heroes was in a similar vein, but it just never, it, it, it never got its legs underneath it the way Lost did. No, and Lost I, I'm, I'm joking. Heroes was the GoBots to Lost's Transformers. Y- yes, absolutely. <laughs> um... Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually currently re-watching it with uh, my wife, Ashley, who has never seen it before. So uh, she's kind of going through it for the first time and going through it with fresh eyes, you know, like not having the baggage of trying to figure out every mystery every week and not not having to deal with the sort of hype behind it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a better show, I I almost think now, than it was at the time. Because you can just sort of get caught up in the character drama. Which, you know, the Puzzle Box, J.J. Abrams stuff is what it is. Um, but they tie most of it together better than I sort of remember feeling. You know, and, and it did have a... a pretty big dvd box set release oh yeah it was like the encyclopedia britannica yeah and back then there were i think it was like pre-blu-ray they might have re-released it on blu-ray i'm not sure but um it it, like every season was like five or six discs oh i mean yeah but you know the first three seasons are like 20 something episodes long so right there's that but I also just think, like, it would be cool to see some, like, retrospective documentaries and stuff that's a little more current and and looking back at it as sort of a legacy show versus, you know, the the weekly water cooler show, which it certainly was. I mean, it, it yeah. sort of created that for this generation or, well, that, for that a previous generation. generation. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I know what you mean. It was... I I agree. I think a lot of people do sort of think of um, the interest in narrative drama television uh, peaking around the time of Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones and that kind of stuff. But it really was Lost that brought it back in a big way. It opened the door for these other shows, for, for long-form storytelling i I mean it's still a little more episodic than some shows today which you know sort of try to play out as a you know an eight episode movie or whatever yeah um and in some ways i think it kind of benefits from that especially in the later seasons that weren't as long uh but yeah i just also you know it launched the careers of several prominent filmmakers like J.J. Abrams and uh, Damon Lindelof and uh, a comic, you know, a huge comic book career for Brian K. Vaughn. And like, Mm -hmm. it it was sort of a a generational passing of the torch moment. So I just, Mm -hmm. I think it 
deserves the treatment more than, um, uh, you know, more than other shows. More than heroes. Yes. <laughs> or the cape. Or oh my the God. event. Uh, or yeah. oh, the oh. slap. <laughs> okay, my second pick is uh, another short-lived series, although this lasted a little bit longer. I think there was two to three seasons. Um, this was one of many shows that uh, was largely written by and showrun by Aaron Sorkin. And in my mind, still his best television work. Uh, and that is the show Sports Night, which is oh, sort of okay. a behind-the-scenes drama, dramedy about a ESPN-like network. And this was this ran between 98 to 2000 and uh, starred uh, uh, Josh Charles and Peter Krause, who was later in Six Feet Under. Um and Felicia Huffman and just had a really cool cast. And it was, you know, largely it was about the two anchors, the main anchors and their sort of their stake in the show with their personal lives and the drama and the romances and whatever. But it was also became a bit more of an ensemble as the show went. And unfortunately, when it first started, the first season, it kind of, started on awkward foot because it they weren't they didn't know exactly how to sell it um because it's like sorkin dialogue so the tone was there was no real precedent for it on television yet so they still had mm -hmm. a laugh track even though the show wasn't oh. a, wasn't a sitcom really but then in the second season or even maybe in still in the first season as the show went on, they slowly start fading out the uh, the laugh track until by season two, there is no laugh track anymore. Weird. I mean, I, I, I feel like they're not the only show that did that. Well, I feel like there, there was this kind of period in television where, you know, it was like before The Office sort of broke big mm -hmm. and... And changed what kind of a sitcom could be. Um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I remember I used to watch the show. They would show it late at night, uh, syndicated on Comedy Central. And like on the weekends and stuff, they'd show like two episodes back to back. And that's when I was watching it. And I remember I liked it because it wasn't a sitcom. Person. Yeah, I liked it because it had this kind of melancholy to it. There was something a little bit more serious and grounded about it. And I, I just really like the cast and I really like those actors. And of course, the dialogue's great because it's Sorkin before he completely crawled up his own ass. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people out there who love, love, love The West Wing. And I can't tell you. How terribly I think that show has aged. But I think for all the people who love the West Wing, go back and watch Sports Night because it's, uh, I think, the better show. And 
again, I would love to see it given that sort of treatment with all of the things and uh, interviews and such. And um, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I really liked Newsroom. Uh, yeah, it, well, that's kind of what Sports Night was like. It was like Newsroom, but less topical. Like, yeah, it wasn't like I, they had to do talk about the actual thing. It was it had less to do with um, with the actual show, with the actual yeah. show. It, like, usually when you the, the parts of the show they would show um, would just be them cutting to commercial or or uh, finishing an episode. And then that's when the episode starts is when they go to the bar after or when they're talking in the taxi. Gotcha. Or when yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it had it was that was just so, the I will say sometimes that annoys me in a show, but other times I, I think it can work. I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I, I want to see more of the show within the show. But yeah, I, I mean, every I once in a while, about. there's an episode. It's like, oh, we have to send so-and-so out to get this big interview with this football star, but it didn't expect I, you I, to know who those people were or to care. Or anything I, I'm like specifically referring to 30 Rock, which I love. It's a great show, but it did frustrate me that you almost never saw the any of the show itself. Yeah, And yeah. I think that's fine, especially for the type of show 30 Rock was, but Especially early on, I was like, I kind of want to see what the show actually is. Well, funnily enough, Aaron Sorkin, after he had uh, West Wing, um, he did a show called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. That was only that a last- Sorkin? That was Sorkin. Oh, shit. Uh, only lasted a season, and that show and 30 Rock premiered in the same year. And yeah, that's actually I think why Studio 60 got canceled was because 30 Rock was the bigger hit and it was it was like a, a more open it was it, you know it was a broader comedy whereas Studio 60 was more of a drama and they kind of right. didn't know what to do with it. Exactly. All right, what is your uh final pick? So, uh, my final pick is actually in a similar vein of, of Sports Night. My final pick is the Larry Sanders show. I almost um, picked this, but I didn't because I've technically never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have seen it. I actually... So, uh, the Larry Sanders show is about a, a late night talk show um, with the host, uh, Gary Shandling, playing a character, Larry Sanders. Um, I was kind of burning through episodes as the late night, the local late night talk show I was a part of was sort of falling apart. Um, so it hit real close to home. Mm. It, uh, it, you know, I felt like I had sort of a personal connection to it. Um, but it's also just a great show. Like, and again, similar to Lost sort of blew the doors open for a lot of uh, what HBO, you know, original programming to come. Uh, You know, it was one of their first shows uh, clear back in 1992. Um, You know, as a low budget comedy, Mm -hmm. they were able to get away with a lot of writing stuff. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, 
kind of similar to what you were saying about sports night. Like it's more about the behind the scenes stuff. Um, it's, it's, but it's not sitcom-y. It's, it is funny. It's definitely a comedy, but it is more, I mean, again, like every comedian you will ever see an interview from a certain generation will say that they were either influenced by the Larry Sanders show or like a part of it somehow. Right. Um, it, it just really changed the game for what comedy could be on TV. Like, Literally, whatever your favorite comedy show is would not exist without the Larry Sanders show. Like it, it showed us that they can, it can have a, a, a format that's different than the multicam sitcom. Um, and you know, it's just chock full of celebrity guest stars of the time and, and just such a, a, a piece of its time. That I think, again, it would be really cool to see a bunch of, like, retrospective materials for it. Um, it you know, as much making of stuff that we could get. I, I, I just... It, this was one that, again, was released on DVD, I'm sure. Um, uh, but I think even now, you can feel the ripples of this show as an influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it just deserves that sort of prestige treatment. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it was one of HBO's first bigger shows. Yeah. Like that. I mean, and, this was pre-Oz. Yeah, it I was think. like that and Arliss was like all they had for a while. Yeah. It might even be pre-Sex in the City. Oh, I'm sure it's pre-Sex in the City. All right. Um, my last pick here is one that I I have the DVD set of, actually. Um, but, uh, it is, uh, Daria from MTV. The, the set that they eventually released and they sat on it for a long time before releasing it because unfortunately the, uh, company that, uh, put out the physical were never able to clear a lot of the music rights and, you know, it being an MTV show, it was chock full of music from the era, um, mm -hmm. late nineties to early two thousands. So, uh, what they ended up doing is they ended up replacing all of the original music that was in the show. Um, you know, by various pop and rock people from the time to just license free music. Mm. And the set is pretty bare bones. I don't believe there's any special features, I don't believe there might be like a couple behind the scenes interviews and things like that, but that it's, it's not much. I think shout factory put it out and they did as, as well with they, with it as they could, but I would love to see, especially now that um, people are less stingy about physical rights to, mm -hmm. for them to restore the music from the show for one and then give it the full treatment. And because I feel like there's so much you could still say about that show. And yeah. even though it's kind of a time capsule of like early millennial to late Gen X or whatever. But yeah, it, I mean, to think of a show like it, to have a female centered protagonist who 
is unlike any kind of stereotype that really exists on television. Yeah. Um, even within her own world, right? Because she's like seen as like a loner and an outsider and an intellectual, but she's not, it's they never play that as like the teen nerd for laughs kind of thing. She's actually really on it. She lives by these very stringent ethics that are well beyond her years that, you know, make it practically impossible for her to navigate being a teenager, but thus where the tension and the comedy comes from. Yeah. And especially like, you know, this is sort of ethical standard that the only one who's holding it to her to it is herself. Right. It was a big moment in television and it was a big moment for MTV um, at the time. And, uh, you know, I, there's still a lot of people out there who hold Beavis and Butthead in high regard. And I think there are still a lot of people who who have seen the Beavis and Butthead or enough of it or understand its cultural relevance who still haven't really given Daria a shot. Um, well, it was also it was also I think a, a pretty big milestone for adult animation, mm-hmm. and you know I advocated on the podcast plenty of times that drives me nuts that animation, especially in America, tends to get pigeonholed as just sort of kid stuff, and this was this wasn't quite adult stuff but it wasn't kid stuff either it was you know it was a very specific sort of time you know i would say it skews more adult um but it's definitely the sort of young adult thing that and it was on a network that wasn't fox which fox and adult swim are still sort of the only places we can get that kind of stuff i guess now you know a little bit more with uh streaming but Mm. Yeah, even still, it's animation is sort of treated in a weird way. It's either got to be kids or comedy, and Daria didn't doesn't really fit into that box. Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a comedy beyond anything else. Yeah, but it, it also wasn't afraid to be serious. Yeah, no, it it, it was it was very careful with its tone and the way that it treated its characters and even the characters that are sort of one note or are archetypal they would show you a different side to them or give you some sort of there was an incredible amount of empathy for um mm-hmm. even the most vapid characters on the show. Absolutely. Did I tell you uh, that not too long ago, I found a Daria t-shirt at a yard sale for like, I think it was like 10 cents. Oh, wow. Yeah, I was very, very happy. It's a it's a comfy shirt, too. I like it. Cool. No, Daria's a great pick. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if we'll ever see a, a release like that, especially with the original music, just because the licensing rights are so expensive and difficult. Because a lot of well, those and at this point, I th- it, contracts yeah, I just, have probably evaporated with the original music labels and stuff. So you know, yeah. Okay. Well, since you've read parts of our streaming homework, sort of the immortal, I'll go ahead and describe Cocaine Bear because I feel like okay. you can add more context into your description of uh-huh. streaming homework. I mean, I uh, sure. I get it. 
but yours is also about a bear on cocaine, so... Right. So in... You owe me. In the film Cocaine Bear, uh, <laughs> directed by Elizabeth Banks, um, there's a bear on cocaine. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, there's more to the movie than that. There is. I've Okay, so there's a big cast of characters here, and the it's loosely based on a true story, extremely loosely based on a true story or true events where... A, a bear did cocaine once, and then they did a movie a, that was like, oh, that'd be a fun idea for a movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there's a, there's a drug cartel that ends up throwing bricks of cocaine out of an airplane into the woods of Kentucky-ish area, right? Somewhere in the Ozarks, Blood Mountain is what it's called. And mm. there's some local people down there. Uh, you know, both some hooligans who are up to no good in the, in the national park, some park rangers, um, some runaway teens, the parents of said runaway teens and the drug lords mob men who are all out to get to the cocaine before the cocaine bear, uh, kills everybody in the movie with varying degrees of success. Um, <laughs> the cast includes, this is the last film by film star Ray Liotta, who plays the, uh, the main mob heavy in here. Yeah. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Uh, his men on the job are played by Oshia Jackson, Jr. Ice cubes kid, um, who was in the, uh, Straight Outta Compton movie, and Alden Ehrenreich, who's been pretty much invisible since the Solo film, and Carrie Russell, who plays the mother looking for her teen daughter, played by Brooklyn Prince, who some people might remember from The Florida Project. Um, we have a cop played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who's on the, on the trail, um, Margot Martindale, who plays a park ranger with, uh, Jesse Tyler Ferguson and the cast the, goes on and on. for all the people who were like, that little boy looks so familiar. What do I know that little boy from? He was the boy who played Sweet Tooth in the, uh, Netflix original Sweet Tooth. Right. So I remember... I don't know if this was from just doing news segments for the podcast or if this goes all the way back to when I was doing little write-ups uh, for a film trade I worked for in 2015 called The Wrap. But I specifically remember Elizabeth Banks getting signed on to this project. And it's been a while since it's come to fruition. I don't remember talking about it, so this sounds more like a uh, the rap thing. But um, I think it has been in the works for a while, and I, I think it also I think it got delayed by COVID and all manner of things. Right. So Elizabeth Banks has directed a few films, but not many. Uh, she did the most recent Charlie's Angels film, like reboot. Um, she did Pitch Perfect 2. She had a short in the movie 43, but is largely known as an actress 
Um, she kind of comes from the David Wayne school. And I think there's a little bit of that in here. There's a little bit of like a wet, hot American summer meets an asylum sharktopus kind of experience. A little bit. I mean, it, yeah, I, I it's definitely it's not full parody. Um, right. You know, it wants to to stay as grounded as it can, but it definitely has fun with the idea of a bear on cocaine. I don't think it's that grounded. I mean, I think it's what I mean by asylum is there's a there's a studio out there who creates what they call mockbusters called Asylum Pictures. They're most famously noted for the Sharknado movies to do stuff like giant cobra versus robot dog or whatever those kind of movies um that go straight to dvd or straight to some streaming service um yeah i i think that this movie is is certainly uh above that in that it has characters and right i mean it is above that it's about a bear on cocaine but there it's, is more going on. Right. It's more concerned with the comedy than just the exploitable nature of it. But yeah. I, I do think that somewhere in its DNA is that. I think Oh, that- ab- I mean, absolutely. It is. Yes, it is. It's an elevated version of that. It is a version of that that's like, okay, what if we have the all of the fun of, you know, dragon versus cobra Mm-hmm. But we actually, you know, actually try to 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 do it. <laughs> Let, let's try to make it an actual movie. Yeah, and exactly. In fact, I believe Asylum or one of those is releasing uh, something called like Meth Gator that's coming out. <laughs> um, which, of course, they are. Why wouldn't they? I mean, I. Uh, I think after I left the theater, I said, you know, like the next one's going to be Meth Moose. Um, <laughs> but yeah, exactly. Like yeah, the idea of a, uh, a, you know, a fucking deadly animal amped to the gills on some kind of a, a an upper that's going to make it crazy aggressive. Like, right. Yeah, it, it's a pretty it's a pretty solid formula. I see them kind of living on that for a while. Uh, there are. They're also already talking about sequels to this movie, which is probably going to happen because it was very successful, which goes to show that that type of exploitation marketing is still very effective. Oh, I I almost think it might be easier to market now with just sort of the, you know, just sort of the, the... way things can become viral and just, you know, mimetic marketing, I think definitely plays into something like this. Like, you know, one of the guys who was the, um, he was like one of the, uh, um, one of the guys who shows up in the ambulance, you know, like he is known for his viral TikToks. Like, yeah, yeah. He's the angry, uh ikea employee yeah Yeah. i mean he's great at the the, his videos are great they're very entertaining like he he you know and and i enjoyed his performance in this i i Mm -hmm. he's one of those that i could like see him transitioning to a career as an actor like i i 
you know, I'm sure he is an actor. Yeah. Um, but you, you know what I mean? So like, they're just using that to their advantage. And I think it, in this day and age, you can be savvy enough that, you know, it it's more than just sort of running a Twitter account with the name of the movie. And they, they use that to great effect. Yeah, I would imagine, I you know, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would imagine the price they paid for marketing was at least half the budget of this entire project or more. Well, and, and I am also pretty sure that most of that marketing probably went to social media directly versus, yeah. you know, like television ads. Yeah, I'm sure, sure it was... This reminds me a lot yeah. of uh, the, I guess, sort of proto-viral phenomenon that was snakes on a plane. I agree. But, and this is to pivot back to this movie, uh, I think this was a better movie. Yeah, I'd say it's about six and one half a dozen the other. Really? I I think, I mean, snakes on a plane was fun. I enjoyed it. This movie is also fun. But, like, I think this one is also sort of building around... It's got a lot of other stuff going on with all of these sort of individualistic characters, whereas Snakes on a Plane was built mostly around Samuel L. Jackson saying, I'm sick of all these motherfucking snakes on this motherfucking plane, which, as it should have been, but I th- I don't know. I feel like this one delivers more on the cocaine bear <laughs> than Snakes on a Plane delivered on the snakes on the plane. I mean, it's been a minute since I've seen Snakes on a Plane, so I can't do a one-for-one comparison right now. I'm just going off of memory mostly, which is granted a while back. Um, but Probably 20 years. Uh, around that. I was kind of hot and cold on this movie through most of it. I th- I like a lot of the characters. Ugh, of course you were. The cast is great. Uh, you know, I like to see Alden Aaron Reich in pretty much everything. He's a guy I root for. I'm still waiting for the Aaron Reich moment. You know, yes, we almost I... had it, and it kind of slipped through his fingers in well, something that had like... nothing to do with him, but... Yeah, Star Wars fans did him real dirty. Super dirty, but I think he's better than that. I think he's he's still he has a moment to come. Um I I hope so cuz I agree and I think he's I think he's one of the standouts in this in particular. I he think is. he uh he he's having a lot of fun and I think the character they build around him is is a lot of fun. Yeah, he's super committed and and he gets to do kind of gets to play against type in in you know the type of role that he is and yeah O'Shea Jackson Jr. I don't think he's a very good actor. I'm sorry. I thought he was okay in straight out of Compton, but had a lot of support to help him get him through that. Plus he's doing an impression of his dad. So there's that. But in this where he doesn't have all of that lean on, I really did not, and especially working against Aaron Reich, I did not feel like he was very good. I think he's. I I think at this point he should be doing like television or something until he can like 
totally get his footing as an actor. I mean, I don't disagree with you that, you know, he's punching above, way above his weight with Alden Ehrenreich, but I actually thought they had pretty good chemistry together. And, I mean, I don't know, his character... He was fine. He was fine. A lot of the characters, uh, I didn't feel like they used, utilized well enough. I I thought Jesse Tyler Ferguson was really, really funny. And then he sort of disappears out of the film way too quick. Like, they were building something with him, and he just kind of is there and gone when there was so much potential to, to keep that in the movie. Especially he had a very uh, uh, fun... Um he had a very fun dynamic with Margot Martindale. Like, yeah, and he's, and he's playing something very different than what we've seen him do before. So I felt like that was a bit of a lost opportunity, both of them, really. But. I, I do agree with you that he was kind of cut abruptly from, uh, like, his part, I felt like, I thought was going to be bigger. And I, I want, I do think maybe should have been more. Um, uh, I thought Margot Martindale was great. Yeah, she and she was great, she and she's also the- really good at doing these type of supporting player deals. She knows how to to put the meat on the thinnest character, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, even though I don't think the movie cares that much about that character, she brings a lot to it as an actor. Oh, I, I mean, I think she steals every scene she's in. Yeah. yeah. My biggest issue with it mostly is in pacing, both the pacing of the film as a whole, which it's only 35 minutes long, but feels a whole lot longer. You mean an hour 30? Uh, Yeah, an hour 35 minutes, but it feels like it's 2.15 or something because it just doesn't really know what to do with its runtime. And then the actual editing and pacing of the set pieces were clunky and awkward like i was expecting more from the cocaine bear violence and it is violent it's very violent it's actually much gorier than some people probably realize walking into the movie so that's something they should be aware of if they're not normally gorehounds even though this is you know broadly speaking a comedy but uh but yeah, I didn't feel like there was any tension. There, it wasn't funny enough, really, and it wasn't even working on like a monster movie level most of the time. It it's like the bear pops up, and then you just get these awkward set pieces of people hiding behind trees and then talking to each other. Then they the camera cuts to something else that's going on and it just breaks up the action in these weird ways that don't that where every action set piece just kind of sits there. There was only one sequence that I thought actually worked as, as a uh, action set piece with this bear. And that is the sequence you already mentioned with the, with the, uh, with the ambulance drivers who come in later. Um, That's the only thing where from beginning to end of that, scene i felt like that was properly built up and there's a like a normal course like rise and fall of action all the rest of the scenes like the one with the gazebo it just feels like it's going on and on and nothing's really happening and i'm going to 
agree with you and disagree with you. I think the movie definitely... I, I don't think it felt long, but I do think it has some some editing issues. There were some strange cutarounds mm-hmm. that I noticed while I was watching the movie, which doesn't happen a lot. But I also disagree with the idea that they don't do much with the cocaine bear premise. And like you said, it's it's violent. I think the cabin scene uh, uh, is incredibly well done. And the ambulance scene, I mean, I don't know if you saw this with a crowd, but goddamn, that was like so fun to watch with a bunch of people. We were screaming at the screen. It was great. But I do think it loses that tension. Like to me, that was that should have been the climax of the film. And Instead, it does sort of go on after, and the actual climax, I think, left me pretty wanting. Yeah, that So, whole, I, I get what you're talking about. That whole sequence at the end at the waterfall, it's like poorly lit. I could barely see what was going on. Um, I didn't have that issue, but it, it, it was clunky. Like, the staging of it is was very strange. Like... You have all these characters sort of in profile to each other and throwing guns around in ways that don't make sense. And then there's these baby bears that we don't really know what to do with. Like, that's the whole sort of end sequence, I think, was kind of awkward and uh, uh, unfortunate. Because up to that point, I was having a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say this is like the worst movie I've ever seen. It was just kind of a nothing movie. Like, I, I, it wasn't, it was basically exactly what it says on the tin, but yet I still kind of came away unsatisfied. I was like, I, I, I definitely wanted more cocaine bear in my cocaine bear. And it just wasn't very well staged as an action film. I don't know if, if Elizabeth Banks really has it in her to, has that in her skill set yet in how to block and stage and edit an action sequence? Because there's very few that I think really stand out. The one we both agree rules is the only one they use in the trailer. Yeah. But it's because it rules. Like, I, I don't yeah. know. I So then you're getting the best scene in the movie in the trailer. Yes. But that's every fucking movie, Cassidy. Like, do you know how trailers <laughs> work? Like, I I mean, I mean, I, did I need to see a trailer for this movie? No. You had me at the words cocaine bear. Right. And I, but, I think it's living a lot on that. Um, that's why I think, I, I think at the end of the day, I might, I think that Snakes on a Plane achieves what it's going for. A little bit better. Now, I might be mm, thinking in rose-colored tinted glasses because I, again, I have not seen that movie in a very long time. Um, I, I mean, it. Per, I remember liking that movie enough when it came out, but I, I definitely, I felt like I wanted more out of it. This, I feel like, I again, I get what you're saying to an extent, but. Maybe not to the degree that you felt it, because I I just had a blast with this movie. Um, I do think it's flawed. I, th- I think it it, but I 
I really liked that they didn't pull the punches with the violence. I, I was not expecting that. So when it goes there, I'm like, oh, fuck, yeah, we got a cocaine bear on our hands here. And I remember that was something that I felt like I felt I remember Snakes on a Plane felt like a PG-13 movie that only pushed it for Samuel L. Jackson saying fuck all the time. Yeah, in fact, I believe um, uh, he doesn't even say it all the time. He says it the one time. And I believe they actually had to go through hoops to get to slip that in. Like it yeah, was a new I mean, story that, might- that they were able to shoot that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and I and I didn't feel that way with Cocaine Bear, which I think lean, lends itself more to Cocaine Bear. I my big problem was a couple editing cuts were very strange and took me out, and I do think the whole sort of end sequence once uh, unfortunately once Ray Liotta shows up, uh the movie feels like it's kind of over, and that's a bummer. Um, because, you know, up to that, he's a little bit in the beginning, but up to that point, he's not really in the movie. Um, but it, it just sort of feels like the high, you know, the high has come down. And uh, for lack of a better metaphor, um, yeah. and, and it just sort of feels like it's obligatory mm-hmm. at that point. But everything up to that point, I was on board with. Yeah, like, this is a catch-it-on-cable kind of movie for me. Like, I I would not say you need to run out immediately and see this. Although I do think seeing it with a crowd is going to give you more out of it than watching it in the comfort of your own home. Um, but yes. if, if you're home and you have friends and you like to partake in the herbal essences, I could see that maybe. Oh, absolutely. Maybe uh, enhancing the film. This is just like the the schlocky again. It's it's above that level of the asylum snake pictures. versus cobra in that it feels like a real movie. Um, but yes, this is a total hangout. Yeah, with your friends, get lit. Here's do a- do whatever recreational activities are legal within your area, and um, and have a good time with it. I I'm giving this. I'm going to give it a solid B plus for what it is. I think it accomplishes what it's going for. Okay, you're high on cocaine. Yes, I'm. I'm giving it a B plus. I had a great time. Is this elevated art? No, but did I get what I wanted out of it? Absolutely. And and I think the movie knows what it is. Well, I mean, how could it not? I just exactly. I just feel like even. I think there's a. It could have been a little slicker. It could have been a little bit more com- better conceived. Okay, well, this movie I'm giving a C. Yeah, watch it when it's on Netflix. All right, whatever. So let's go ahead and talk about Sword of, or what was it called? Blade of the Immortal. And I'll let you describe that. Okay. So this is about this young girl, her father runs a a school of sword technique. I'm probably going to be butchering some of, you know, like the maybe sort of the cultural concepts. But this young girl witnessed to her father getting brutally murdered uh, because he runs this school of, of sword technique. There is a, a, a this 
rival school developing in, you know, Edo era Japan, um, whose goal is to go across the land and destroy the formal schools of, of sword technique and, and samurai, uh, to create a new school of strongest winds. Fuck, fuck honor. Why are we going through all of this process within war making? Let war be war and fight however dirty you want to fight idea. So this after this girl's father is murdered and mother is kidnapped and she doesn't know the fate of her mother. She gets, you know, this guidance to seek out this swordsman who is immortal. Uh, he it goes by the name of uh, Manji, and he has been given this sort of gift slash curse of these blood worms within his body that heal uh, pretty much any wound. He's he's a samurai wolverine because of this strange magical worm in his blood. <laughs> so yeah, the two of them team up uh, and sort of slowly pick apart at this school as it's building and sort of episodic in nature as Manji encounters um, these sort of generals within the school, uh, you know, in this tale of revenge of eventually building to where their paths should meet. Yes. Um, it's funny you said Wolverine. I, I immediately thought of The Crow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, to me, this was like the crow meets Leon the professional in Edo, Japan. Oh, yeah, I, I did forget kind of a big part of the story uh, where Manji, the immortal swordsman, he had a sister who died basically because he couldn't protect her. And this new girl reminds him a lot of his sister. Right. So, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this is uh, directed by the Japanese filmmaker Takashi Miike, who most people probably know him best from the movie Audition uh, that he did in 1999. I thought I heard somewhere that this is his 100th movie. That's very possible. Crazy shit. Yeah, because he's, yeah. he's, had, he's had relative success internationally and in the western states uh but he is in japan he is a factory unto himself he just you know pumps shit out like he probably does like average two to three movies a year and has been since he's been a filmmaker so if you go actually look at his IMDb credits, it's just yeah, that's insane. It's it's craziness, and the ones that actually make it beyond Japan are the ones that are you know obviously have the broadest appeal, um, and can be marketed in other countries a little easier. Some stuff is you know because he doesn't just make action movies or horror movies and stuff. He makes kind of everything, but. Uh, in the, yeah. the ones that he's most well known for, movies like Audition, which is like early J horror, or uh, lately he's been doing a lot more of these kind of Edo period pieces, um, samurai film, 
you know, uh, th- 13 Assassins, this, his remake of Harakiri, which we actually watched in a theater in Portland. Um, oh, shit. That was him? Yeah, it was 3D. Huh. Remember that? That was pretty wild. Yeah, I do remember that. I'm not familiar with the manga. I'm not familiar. There's also been an anime as well. Um, it's pretty mm-hmm. common for adaptations of manga to to have both. So yeah, I I, I really enjoyed what I saw. I thought that it was uh, it was paced very well. It's really easy to kind of do revenge stories in an episodic way. That even at two and a half hours are you know sort of mini stories within the stories. You have these reach these new goals. So yeah, well, I mean, there's also just like a ton of action too. So like, yeah, you know, it, it's it's never um, you know it's not going to be boring <laughs> for mm-hmm. sure because um, there's plenty of duels and battles and and stuff. And it ha- yeah, it has this kind of structure of you know almost a bunch of little short stories within one larger story. Yeah, which um, I would imagine in a comic might work out to be like an issue or a single volume or something like that per story. Yeah, so what I read, um, from what I read, basically covered the first, like, half of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, up, up till he has the duel with the, the like, lady assassin. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, like, that was pretty much the point where the books I was reading left off. Um, and you know, they're a little truncated, but for the most part, I think as an adaptation, I think this movie does some stuff better than the manga. I I think the fact that it's a little truncated is actually a benefit. I think some of the manga stories were a little more drawn out. Um, uh, you know, as an adaptation, that's just something that you're never going to please everybody with. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as a movie, this is, you know, paced pretty well. The the one story that I felt like I wish I'd gotten a little bit more out of was the, the guy with the heads. Um, Cause he's just such a cool, weird, scary villain in sure. the book. Um, but he's also, you know, sort of like the first big obstacle they kind of have to overcome. Again, I think the, the movie does a really good job of it adapting the source material from what I read uh, in a way that, you know, makes it a movie mm-hmm. versus, you know, an, a, a, an anime series or a, a show. You kind of have to pick and choose what makes the cut, you know, from what I again, from what I've read, they got the core of the story really well. I again, I actually think the movie made some stuff a little bit better. Um, like the, the action scenes in the book are, they're really artfully done, but as, you know, as sequential art, sometimes it's a little hard to follow the action. Um, and I know that some of that has to do with the translation and the way they like literally had to recut some of the panels. Um, cause they wanted it to read, uh, as more of a traditional comic book so a lot of stuff some stuff is a little chunky in the translation Mm -hmm. um but i think it you know it as a movie with a 
director who has a visual eye for violence the way that Takeshi Miike does, um, you know, it leads to some really cool action. And and I also think that the two leads here, particularly the guy who plays Manji, brings a lot of life to the character that isn't necessarily the same on the page. Mm. Um, but I preferred sort of the actor's version of him a little bit more. Yeah, and I think I read somewhere that uh, Takashi Miike, like, he wanted to make him a bit more of a darker hero or a bit more of an anti-hero than what was written. He, yeah, in the comic book, he he seems a little younger. He's a little more quippy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a little cockier. Uh, and I like the version in the movie where he he just sort of feels grizzled and just beaten down. And, uh, you know, like you can tell that he sort of has lost maybe he, he's sort of lost some of his sword skill because he hasn't needed to be as technically proficient because he's fucking immortal right uh and i just i feel like the actor carried that really well and um yeah and also just some stuff like visually his uh like his kimono has this stark black and white which the whole manga is black and white so it you know that doesn't necessarily read as well as it does in a color movie mm-hmm. and and, you know, sort of seeing the this white kimono start to get drenched with blood. Uh, visually speaking, I think it, the director is taking from the manga and adding to it in a way that, you know, film can, that a manga can't necessarily do. Right, right. Yeah, I thought it was cool how it was like one of two things, either... He's not actually that good of a swordsman because in every fight, he's getting really fucked up. He's getting, like, stabbed (laughs) multiple times. Or uh, it's a character thing, like you described, where he can pretty much use himself as a human shield because he Mm -hmm. knows he can recover. So he has the confidence to not avoid every jab or every slash. Uh, well, and, and the movie cleverly tells you it's the latter because mm-hmm. in the beginning, the, the movie opens with this huge action sequence of him, you know, sort of uh, before he has these blood worms yeah. where he takes on a hundred people. Right. And you know, is able to cut them all down. So that in contrast to sort of a similar action piece at the end where he isn't able to, to just sort of take every blow, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I think visually the movie does tell you that like he, the manga explicitly states it like, you know, he, he says a couple times like, Oh shit, I've gotten lazy with my swordsmanship and stuff. Um, but I feel like the movie shows you that through that like opening action scene and closing like the that bookend. Yeah. Yeah. That's very yeah. cool. And also I I really liked how the first sequence, the like uh, the memory sequence mm-hmm. is done in black and white, which is it seemed to me like sort of a nod to 
to Kurosawa to all of the other people from this genre that have come before that he's, you know, visually paying homage to or stylistically. Um, I think it's also, uh, I, th- I think you're absolutely correct, but I also think it's referencing the manga. Probably. Because it I is in imagine black and white. So too. Yeah. Uh, and then it immediately goes to color when it cuts forward in time. Um, mm-hmm. uh, shows you where that style is advanced and what he brings to it. And it is hyper violent, super bloody. This is a very gory episode as far as both of our movies go. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it but still feels fairly traditional, you know. It doesn't. I mean, there is a supernatural element to it uh, with him being literally immortal and these bloodworms and these like uh, sorcerers and stuff. But it still has that uh, samurai as the American Western feel to it. Yeah, it's it's. It doesn't feel it never feels like full blown fantasy. Like it it feels like this exists within the real world. Yeah. It's just not everybody has ex- you know come across this sort of magical elements. Yeah, and there's some blending of style there too. Like even within that, like yes, there's obviously the Kurosawa John Wayne inspired thing or like the spaghetti western uh, mm-hmm. uh, tropes translated th- back through Japan, but then there's also like in some of the sword play and some of the choreography, there's a little bit of like Shaw brother Wuxia kind of stuff going on, where it's a little bit more playful, a little bit more um, a little heightened, heightened, yeah. yeah, like that, like every once in a while there'll be a wire trick or something like that. That obviously it's not. Crouching Tiger, people flying through the trees, but they'll they'll employ that here and there in in very tasteful touches. Yeah, yeah, but never in a way that oh, I think over overcomes the movie. Yeah. Like I, one of the reasons I like this story and I like this character is is because it is about this grounded, like grizzled fucking guy who wants to die you know he do- he doesn't want to be immortal because his, his because of his uh sister and just like i, I don't know it, it plays with that i concept i think in a very fun way versus this sort of glamorous look of immortality of like you know like wolverine or like vampires or something where they sort of talk about that but you don't really see them sort of experiencing this sort of physical and emotional pain on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is this is sort of the near dark of samurai movies. It's a little more grounded. It's a little dirty. It's a little meaner. Um, but yes, it still has all of those hallmarks of a samurai movie. Right. And, and it is obvious, obviously paying these visual or stylistic nods to to something like the the big battle sequences in Seven Samurai or some of the character tropes in like Lone Wolf and Cub and stuff that came before it and or um oh absolutely you know the wounded the 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 trope of the the wounded samurai like 
Sometimes it could be the blind samurai like Zatoichi or the armless samurai or whatever. There's a hundred movies that are like that. So, but it kind of, it's like subverting that a bit. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, the, the manga is also directly referenced by these same movies and, and pulling from those same influences, uh, you know, because it, it, it also has this, for lack of a better word, Western quality to it that i you know i think is is the movie is definitely influenced by these other movies but it's also influenced by the manga in a way that i found very satisfying like i you know like visually he's pulling from that as well and in a way that that works in a way that these influences are coming together to have a pretty cool looking movie yeah, I mean, it. I really, I thought this movie was really, really, really well shot, well edited. Yeah, I, I love the way uh, he frames things in a in a sequence. The way he'll, you know, rack focus to create tension or to inform characters. Like, I mean, he's more than put his what would they say a thousand hours to become a professional or something. <laughs> He has 10,000. 10, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's probably done more than that. So, um, and it shows, you know, even just from the bit of, of stuff of his that I've seen, I think he's, he's a master at what he's doing now. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I wasn't sure about this movie, uh, until I saw that he was directing it, uh, you know, cause sometimes translation from, manga to live action leans a little too heavily on on stuff that you can achieve in animation that you can't achieve in real life mm-hmm. um and so sometimes some adaptations you know can be cheesy looking and you mean you the weren't, fact that you the, weren't a huge fan of the guyver live action films <laughs> <laughs> um you know i liked them enough when i was a kid but <laughs> But yeah, exactly. Like some stuff just doesn't look good in real life. And I think, you know, just the nature of this story and, and what it is drawing from it, it lend, it lends itself to this adaptation really well. And I think, uh, you know, even some of the stuff that is a little more manga esque, you know, like, the scars on his face sure. and the, there's a, a one character with this kind of porky piney hair and yeah, stuff like that. Definitely I, some like uh, some pretty haircuts going on. In yeah. The, and, yeah. And, and very deliberately styled clothing that is theatrical. But I mean, that's, you know, you want that from but a movie I, like this. Well, exactly. And I, and I don't think it ever becomes... I don't think it ever overtakes the movie in a way that makes it feel like cheesy, like, you know, like yeah. some of those uh, other movies can. Yeah. I it think never, it all feels. It never tips into kabuki territory, but it is. Yeah. But it is stylized and very knowingly uh, so. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I thought this movie was cool as fuck. Like it was better than I was even expecting it. I, I, I had a whole lot of fun with it. And I think again, if, if you're a fan of the genre of, uh, either revenge movies or samurai movies, I think, um, I think check this one out for sure. 
Definitely. Yeah. That that would be my recommendation as well. Like, um, if this is one you haven't seen or you've slept on or you didn't know about it, this is like what you would show to somebody who responded big time to the Kill Bill movies. Oh, yeah. Like, Absolutely. If, you, if you've seen those and love them and uh, can appreciate the non-American aspect of it, then then show them this and then open the floodgates into the larger world of of Japanese cinema and, and um, the samurai genre as a whole. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that is the episode. And if anybody has anything to say about any of the topics that we brought up on this podcast or previous, you can reach us at our email at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguff.in. We are searchable now on Letterboxd under McGuffin Podcast or annoyingly McGovkin Podcast because I misspelled it and they don't let you change it. <laughs> um, but uh, it still God shows up it. as either or. You'll be able to find it. You can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy. Be sure to leave the podcast a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or whatever app you use. Uh, you can read my reviews for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Movie Reviews or Arts and Entertainment, and that'll pull up the archives. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles by the rest of the MacGuffin staff at MacGuff.in. Uh, cool. You can follow me on uh, Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. You can also, uh, if you're in the San Diego area, check out my improv show, uh, Improv vs. Stand-Up. Uh, you can also follow it on Instagram for updates at Improv vs. Stand-Up. That is the end of our episode. A bear. It fucking did cocaine. A bear did cocaine. Bye.